Well, good morning. It's good to be back with you uh, this week. If you came last week and you found the doors shut, we're sorry. I know Alfred did, um, and probably some others, maybe. Uh, but last weekend, uh, we took uh, all of our MC leaders away for uh, a retreat to really pour into them. We really value our missional community leaders. We see their role in our church as really a high calling, and we really want to to um, to make sure that we were pouring into them and taking care of them and investing in their spiritual lives so that they can invest in yours and so they can disciple you and be a part of that. And so I want to just personally thank those of you that watched children uh, during the weekend. Um, it's really great that we get to be family with one another um, and that we get to be... Yeah, you can clap for that. Um, um, so that actually we could take everyone away. That's really good news that we get to be family that way and we get to care for each other and we get to love one another that way. I want to also encourage you, if you're not yet involved in a missional community, really this is really the lifeblood of where discipleship takes place in our church. And so there's nine different missional communities to choose from. There's one you just heard about this morning. Um, you can see me or there's information in the back or anyone up front can give you more information about that. Um, also this morning, I want to introduce uh, my dear brother Yoshi who's walking out on us, but it's all good. He's already standing, so there he is right there. But you can walk out, it's fine. Um, Yoshi uh, is part of our larger Soma family. Um, Yoshi leads a church in Tokyo, uh, Soma Tokyo. Um, and so we've had an opportunity to, to spend some time together over the years. And uh, God has allowed me to, to, to serve him in that way in, in, um, in coaching. And, and Yoshi's pouring back into our lives as well. And so he's here just for the weekend. So make sure you make yourself known to him and introduce yourself to him. So I want to pray this morning. And then uh, we'll jump into the book of Hebrews. So, our Father, we thank you that um, you love us. We thank you that you sent Jesus to die for us. We thank you that we get to worship in this place this morning. We ask that your spirit um, would teach us and that your spirit would move in the midst of us and that you would move in our city. Father, we pray that you would call many children to yourself today and that you would advance your kingdom. Father, we pray for other churches in this city that are um, that are sharing Jesus this morning. Pray that you would be proclaimed in a mighty way throughout uh, the city and throughout the world. Pray that for Tokyo and for other places of the world. Um, we, we thank you that we get to be part of a larger family and that one day we'll get to all celebrate and worship you uh, together um, in your presence. And so, Father, we pray that you would teach us this morning. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So a few weeks ago, we started um, a series on the book of Hebrews, and today we come to chapter 3, um, and I want to talk about today why Jesus is greater, why Jesus is actually far superior to any other human being or anything else that is seen or unseen. And so I want to take a look at chapter 3 uh, and a little bit of chapter 4. Um, so if you have your Bibles, you can open them or it'll be on the screen. Um, so we'll chapter 3 of Hebrews, starting with verse 1. It says this, Therefore, holy brothers who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. I want to stop there for just a minute um, and point out that this book is actually written to believers, and the call for them is to consider Jesus. And how we know that it's written to believers is, it says here, holy brothers who share in a heavenly calling. 
A heavenly calling really means that there is a word from heaven, a word from God, and it's a calling, which means it shows us the way back home, the way back to God. So Christians then are people who have been gripped by this calling. You can say it this way. Basically, the word of God broke into our resistance, took hold of us, and reconciled us to God. And now God's words are leading us home to heaven. See, the truth is that that God has spoken from heaven through his spirit and made a way to heaven through Jesus. And now we are Christians who actually are people who believe that truth and whose hope and whose confidence is in that truth. And that's, that's part of that calling. And, and we understand that, that it was nothing to do with us. If it was our doing, then we would have no hope. It would be just hopeless. Because as I look around this room and as I think about myself, this room and myself is full of a bunch of broken people. Our hope and our confidence hangs on Jesus alone, not on any of our own accomplishments. It's why verse 1 calls us to consider Jesus. To consider Jesus. And I, I want to make this clear here, and we say this often throughout the time, but um, again, I think I want to say it again because so often I think Christians think that the gospel or considering Jesus is for someone who has not yet come to Jesus or someone who's investigating Jesus. They're, they're considering him. They're, they're, they're a seeker, if you want to say it that way. But the reality is that we are, we are all unbelievers even after Jesus has redeemed us. And we're all in need of considering Jesus and comparing him to areas of our lives that we think someone else or something else is greater or better. And we end up worshiping that thing instead of him in that area of our life. It's why we say that the gospel is for the everyday. It's not just something that that happened in your past or something that has future ramification. It's something that is for the everyday. We need to consider Jesus every day. Considering Jesus is really why we're here this morning. It's why we meet throughout the week in missional communities. It's why we meet throughout the week in, in DNA groups. It's why, we, it's why we take communion. We're considering Jesus when we take communion. It's why we pray. It's why we read his words so that we would fall more in love with him and fall out of love with whatever else that has taken a higher place in our lives than him. And so the writer really starts here in chapter 3 and he says, Consider Jesus. And then he goes on in chapter 3 and he, he compares him to Moses, proving that he's, he's worth more consideration than Moses. And one of the other things he does in chapter 3 and 4 is he discusses really the ramifications of what happens when we don't consider Jesus. Really, the whole book of Hebrews is written to help us consider Jesus. That's what the point of chapter 1 was, that, that Jesus was superior to angels. That Jesus is the one who actually made and sustained the world. And angels just run Jesus' errands. They're just his servants. In chapters 2, we saw Jesus taking on human flesh. And he's actually the hope of Psalm 8. Where God puts all people under subjection to him. All people under his feet. That's the point of Hebrews. In fact, it's really the point of the whole Bible. Is to really consider Jesus. As you look through the whole story, it's really leading up so that we would consider Jesus and we would see him being greater than anything else and more superior to anything else that we think is better. So I said I was just going to stop there for a second, but it's important second. Um, I'm going to read again. So chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. 
For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in God's house as a servant to testify the things that were spoken to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are, we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence just as our boasting is in our hope. As we, I want to stop there because just to be clear here, as we think about um, comparing Jesus to Moses, the writer here is not dissing Moses. He's not trying to like put Moses down. I think that's what happens often in our culture. When we compare something or compare someone else, we, we basically put that other person down or that other thing down so that our opinion or this other thing can get raised up. It happens in politics. It happens in the workplace. It happens in our homes with our spouses. It happens, I see it with our siblings. Right? We often are comparing things to put other things down. That's not what's going on here. Um, this comparison is really comparison of, of two good things. It's kind of like maybe think about it this way since we have the All-Star Weekend here this, this, uh, today, right? Uh, you try to kind of comparing LeBron to Jordan or LeBron to Kobe or, in, or for you movie people, maybe it's comparing like Brad Pitt to Harrison Ford. Right? Like it's, the, it's comparing two things and saying this is really good. Right? I don't know, Harrison Ford, I thought he was sexy back in the day. I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm old. I don't know. Um, but the writer here is actually, he's quoting from, from, from Numbers 12 where God talks about how, um, how openly he speaks with Moses and how he has this beautiful relationship with Moses. And he's contrasting Jesus and Moses really is something actually special. It's special because Moses was really one of a kind during his time. Moses was a guy who had, had, this, had, had a more intimate relationship with God probably than any other prophet, um, probably in the whole history of Israel. He, he spoke with God often and spent time with God. You remember, he actually even spent time where he actually was glowing because he had this intimate relationship with God. It's much like the comparison um, we saw in, in chapter 2 with angels. We looked at a couple weeks ago, or chapter 1, um, where the writer is saying, you think angels are great? You think Moses was great? Well, Jesus is even better than that. Verse 3 says, Jesus has glory. And then he gives us this example of, of building a house. And he goes on, he says, the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now, as I was thinking through this analogy this week, for me, um, this, this analogy kind of hits home for me. Uh, most of you know that I'm in the process of, of building a house, and I've shared some of this story along the way, and I shared some of it at our leaders' retreat last week. But, but before, um, before we went into building our house, we, we looked at, at all the options of, of whether or not we should do that and how, um, how this would actually be better for us to care for our family and and to care for this family and how we could use it for, for so many things, for, for God's house and for his training and for inviting people in and being hospitable. And we, we thought through those things and we, we prayed for those things and we, we asked if this was a place where we should build that so there could be a place of rest for our community and, and for this community. And we, and we, we asked and we prayed, we asked, sought some counsel, and then we decided to rebuild our house. Um, 
And because of, because of my background, I thought, well, this is a good idea. I should just be the general contractor, um, both for financial reasons and, and I think also a desire. Um, I like to build things. I like to accomplish things. And, um, and I said, well, I might as well build a house. Um, and so last June, we, we actually started to tear our house down. And as the process started with that, we, we kind of had some setbacks. Um, our original foundation that we were going to use had a giant, like, 35-foot crack in it. Um, and so then my house kind of sat for, like, two months, nothing going on, during which all of my tools and the tools of our subcontractor were stolen out of our, our storage unit, really making me responsible for that, about $10,000 worth of tools altogether. Um, and then finally, um, we kind of got through that and we got to the city and they realized that there was something else that, that uh, needed, we needed to file for the city and so we kind of got set back with that. Um, finally, we kind of got to the end of the summer and realized that the foundations that we were going to keep there was not worth fixing and so we tore our house completely down, dug out all the old foundations and started over. And so by... Remember, um, um, we were getting ready to start school, um, and we stopped our kind of our, our summer tour of uh, bouncing and watching houses while people were away on vacation, uh, and we moved into the back of the Wolf's house, um, and we started framing our home with kind of this goal of, of being back in our place around Christmas time. Um, well, that hasn't happened yet. Um, and as our house has, has taken shape, it started to, to rise out of the ground. We hit snag after snag, and our tools were stolen again, and more time after more time. And by the time November came, um, it was becoming clear that we were not even close to being moved back into our house. But um, because of all the setbacks and because of all these other things, um, we weren't even going to have enough money to finish our house. And honestly, the thoughts of those things um, began to consume my mind day and night, really questioning, really processing, um, and, and no good options coming out of that. Um, no good ways to, to figure out how we can now refund this project. And, and to be honest, it really got to an unhealthy point in my life and really consuming my mind, and, and it landed really heavy on Jessica. Um, I think maybe because it was a lot of what all I talked about with her when she was home because she had been away a lot. Um, and I think often she, she really began to lose hope as well. I'm not sure exactly what day it was, but somewhere in mid-December, um, as Christmas was looming, I was standing looking out of one of the holes where a window was supposed to go um, in my bedroom eventually. Um, and just asking God, like, what do you want me to learn from this? What, what are you trying to teach us? What do you want me to know? Um, and I know that you directed us into this project, but it has become a mess. And as I was praying, as I was thinking through those things, I heard him say to me, this is my house to build, not yours. I am the builder, not you. And I'm not sure... Um, what it was um, with that exactly, but but it did it brought me peace, and and although the finances had no longer um, they hadn't gotten fixed, but those thoughts of how this house was going to get built no longer consumed me. I didn't have any of the answers, but I had peace and faith that God was still actually in control, and um, and and I was able to really kind of 
turn a page on that and those thoughts didn't consume me and, and, and I moved on and, and really just kind of didn't think about it anymore. Um, this past weekend, as we went away with um, leaders on the retreat, um, I taught about how Jesus was better and how loving God is really the ultimate thing. We talked about that. It was one of the things we talked about. And then we had some time of solitude. Um, and as I walked around during that time of solitude, um, we were down in Oceanside, uh, right on the water. Um, and as I walked around, um, these three words kept, kept coming into my brain, kept coming into my head. The word failure, the word um, vulnerability, and the word resources. And as I thought more about those words, and I thought, as I, as I thought about this project that we were in, um, I think we went into this project with, with godly motives, but I also had some, some underlying sinful motives. I think if, if I'm honest, I think in pride, I wanted to prove that I could actually be the builder of the house. I wanted people to be able to, to like pat me on the back in some way. In some ways, I think it's even twisted, like it makes me feel like a man that I was actually able to build a house for my family. And although I, I don't consider myself a, a complete failure or unwise for, for starting this house and starting to rebuild this house, I think there were lies that were like being spoken underneath lies of failure in my head, really causing me to be consumed with these thoughts. Failure of, of not being able to finish the house. Failure of, of, um, of, of putting my family in, in a vulnerable position. Failing them... Um, um, to, where, to where if it wasn't for the family of God, we would probably be homeless. Failure to, to lead them well in the midst of those things because there's been stress and bickering in our house because we're, we're a really tight living space. Failure to, failure to lead this church well. I, I know you guys haven't gotten my best at, at often during these months. And I don't, I don't share these things so that, that you would feel bad or that you would fix them or that you would, you would give money towards those things. And to be honest with you, this church has been very generous with us. From the day that we started in our living room, this church has been generous with us. And even as I was planning to share these things this week, um, some of you showed up and actually gave us a financial gift to really care for us in this process. And so I share them because... During this time of solitude on this retreat, as I looked out over the ocean, God also said to me, I have not run out of resources. Look at how much water I have out there. I think in L.A. we often think about water as one of the resources we don't have. But you're sitting there looking out and I'm like, there's plenty of water right here. And he reminded me of what he said back in December, that this is his house to build. And he's going to build it in his time and in his way with the resources that he has. That he is actually the builder, not me. And he's the one who's going to get the honor and he's going to be the one that actually gets the pat on the back. And I think this is what the writer of Hebrews is saying, um, that although Moses did a lot of good things in his life, he led Israel out of slavery, he guided them to the promised land, he instructed them in the law, he healed the sick, Um, despite all of those things, his leadership, Moses was a great leader, but he's still just part of God's house. He's still part of, just part of God's family. That God is actually the one that is orchestrating and that was building his house and that it is his house alone. It's why in verse 3, it says that Jesus is worth more glory than Moses in relation to God's house. Because Jesus is the builder of the house. 
Moses is just part of the house. In other words, Moses, um, Moses is the maybe Moses was building, but but Jesus Jesus made Moses. Jesus made Moses. That's what he's saying. I know we're kind of in the middle of, of the Winter Olympics. I think maybe a way to say, think about this is if it may be like a bunch of snowboarders sitting around and they're getting ready to like drop into the half pipe and, and they're, they're talking about how great they are. And one guy's like, did you see that like, that like, that switch dance backside fakey that I just did? It was really high. And the other guy was like, yeah, but you see that like 720 like Pop-Tart thing I just pulled off? Right? There's so many crazy names for those stupid things. They all look the same to me. Um, and then like Sean White's there, like he's like, I invented those moves before you boys were even born. Like he's so much older than the rest of them. You know, and so they're like having this like argument and Jesus kind of like skis up and he's like, I made Sean White. And he just like drops in and like does some like 920 that no one can do, right? I think that's what the writer here is saying. Moses is great, but Jesus made Moses. It's like the ultimate like drop mic statement. And he just like, boom, see you later. I made Moses. And verse 4 goes on. He reminds us just how great Jesus says. He said, just he reminds us of this. He said, for every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. He's really calling us all to consider this about Jesus. He's saying, I made Moses, bloop, but I also made you. He's saying, he was saying, there are ramifications in your life when you actually consider Jesus. When you actually realize that he is the builder and you are not. And then if we didn't get it with that, he goes on in verse 5 and 6 and gives us another thing to consider, to compare about compares Jesus with Moses and he says Moses was a servant in the house of God while Jesus is a son over the house of God Moses is a servant Jesus is a son you see the difference between a servant and a son is that the son by inheritance actually owns the home he rules over the house he provides for the house and for all those in the house with his wealth the servants don't own anything Servants just follow the words of the owner and they receive their provision from the owner. And so Jesus, as the son, is superior to Moses because he owns the house. Jesus rules over the house of God. Jesus provides for the house of God. And by comparison, Moses is just a servant in the house. He doesn't own it. He doesn't rule over it. He doesn't provide for it. I think the interesting thing here in verse 6 is the reader wants us again to immediately apply, us, apply this to ourselves. Apply this superiority of Jesus to ourselves. He says, see how verse 6 says, says, Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and boast and the boast of our firm, of our, man, I can't read, boast of our hope firm until the end. Just a side note here for clarity, um, this if, the word if here, is a condition of being, not becoming. It's a condition of being, not becoming. Verse 6 doesn't say, you will become God's house if you hold fast. It says, we are God's house if we hold fast. It's like saying, maybe as you can think about it this way, you can say, if you're from L.A., you say, the 405, or the 101, or the 110. Talking that way does not make you an Angeline whatever, however you say that. It just actually shows that you are one. 
In verse 6 it says, it's teaching that if we hold fast to our confidence and we boast our hope in the end, it actually shows that we're part of God's house. It's what defines the household of God, that God's people put their hope in God, that God's people are confident in God, that God's people hold fast to, to God. It, it's, the, it's the human trait that, that there's evidence in your life that you actually belong to God's household. It's why verse 1 says that we're partakers of the heavenly caller. The, the writer's assuming that his readers are already partakers of God's heavenly calling that they're already heavenly bound, that they're not just hearers of their call, but they're actually partakers of the call. They're sharers in it as well. And he puts this word if, this word big if in in verse 6, says if you hold fast to your confidence, God, he's meaning that you are partakers of the call and you're part of the household of God. And this is evidence that you're preserving in your confidence and your hope. Your life is actually going to be a demonstration of those things here. The point is not to, to, to hold fast to assurance in order that you become a partaker, the point is to hold fast because you already are. It's a proof, it's an evidence, it's a demonstration that you have a reality of Christ in your life. And so the writer here is, is really talking about and is relaying this reality because the church is actually the house of God today. Which means that, that Jesus is not just in charge of the house back in Moses' day. Or he wasn't just in charge of the house during the time that, that he walked on the earth. But Jesus is actually in charge of the house this morning too. That Jesus is our maker. Jesus is our owner. Jesus is our ruler. That Jesus is the provider. That he is the son and we are servants. That we're part now of the household of God. You see, Moses is, is one in this household with us. He's a fellow servant alongside of us. But Jesus is our maker. Jesus is our owner. He's the ruler, the provider. And, and why is that? Why is it? Why is he more glorious than Moses? Because Moses, Moses, led, Moses led Israel, God's house, out of physical slavery. But Jesus leads all mankind out of eternal slavery. Right? Moses led Israel to the promised land. But Moses didn't enter it himself. Jesus is actually the promised land and he's going now before us to prepare a place for us in the promised land that he's, that he's promised us when he returns. Moses lifted up a staff for, for people to look on it and find healing from, from the bite of serpents. But Jesus was lifted up on the cross and crushed the head of the serpent so that all who would find him might find ultimate healing in him, all who would look on him. See, Moses was a faithful servant, but Jesus was faithful as a son. And the good news of the cross and the good news of the resurrection is that he makes us sons and daughters through his servanthood. Jesus is greater in every way. He's saying, consider Jesus. Compare him to every area of your life. He's your maker. He's your owner. He's your provider. He's your savior. And really the second half of this passage really is a warning to us to what happens when we lose sight of that reality. We lose sight of who Jesus really is. And then he says the result of that is going to be hard-heartedness and no rest. I want to just read this for you. And as I read it, listen to how many times the words hard-hearted and rest come up. Verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, 
Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of the testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore I was provoked with that generation. I said, they always will go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be any evil and unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if we indeed hold our original confidence firm to the end. As if it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For, you, for who are those who have heard and yet rebelled? It was not all those who left Egypt led by Israel. And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose body fell in the wilderness? And whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Chapter 4. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have uh, failed to reach it. For the good news came to just us, but the message heard them did not benefit them because they were not united by faith, faith with those who listened. For we have believed and entered that rest. As he has said, I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has spoken, uh, somewhere spoken the seventh day in the way, and God rested on the seventh day from all of his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore remains some to enter it, and some who formerly received the good news failed to enter it because of their disobedience. Again, he appointed for a certain day, today, saying through David, so long afterwards, and the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken another day later on. So then remains the Sabbath rest for God's people. Forever has entered God's rest, has also rested from his works, as God did from his Let us therefore strive to enter his rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give an account. I know there's a lot in there. Um, but, but as we look and read through this, there's a strong call in here for us to check our hearts. To look at the areas of our life of where there's hard-heartedness. As we think about this idea of hard-heartedness, what do, you, what do you think are some indicators in your life where there might be, where your heart might be hard? If you're new with us and I ask a question, you get to answer. Um, so, so you think about what, what, are, what are some areas, what are some indicators in, in your life or the life of, of someone um, where, where, your heart, where indicators that your heart may be hard, that there's hard-heartedness? What do you think that looks like? What's that? Stubbornness. Stubbornness. Okay. Um, I was going to say it may not come directly as hardness to you, but it'll take the form of, say, for example trying to come up with some 
uh, justification for not following uh, what God asks of you? Yeah, sure. There's this idea of un, unwillingness to, to admit fault or, or to, to even, maybe it's even know that you're at fault. And then so we make excuses for that. Yeah, good. What else? Anger. anger. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, not, not righteous anger. If, if a human can even live that out, I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> maybe for like a millisecond. Um, yeah, but anger is definitely a, 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 an indicator that there's hard-heartedness. Yeah, good. What else? Mm, yeah, defensiveness. Yeah, good. What else? Some indicators of hard-heartedness. Unforgiveness. Unforgiveness. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. What else? Unwillingness to ask for forgiveness. Yeah, that's definitely a sign of hard-heartedness. Yeah. Pride. Pride, for sure. Mm-hmm. Resentment, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think hard-heartedness sometimes can mean we think we know enough about Jesus already. We got it down. We know all the stories. We have all the information we need. We have an intellectual Jesus without an emotional Jesus. And it leads to hard-heartedness. Yeah, good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Also a certain like discouragement, like and like jaded cynicism towards the rest of the world, I think. Okay, yeah, sure. Yeah, we're very jaded about things when it comes to when our heart is hard. Yeah. We look at it we look at it from a different perspective. Yeah. Entitlement. Entitlement. Mm-hmm. Uh selfishness or greediness, just trying to gain for yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're just about ourselves, not about others. Yeah, yeah. Why do, why do you think it's so hard to admit fault? Why, why, are we, why are we unwilling to ask for forgiveness or live in pride or live, live in these ways? Because that forms an enormous part of our identity and, we, and if we admit that, then we're essentially kicking a crutch out under ourselves as false yeah, the things that we take pride in being hard-hearted about have formed an identity in us, and if we get rid of that, we don't know where to go from there. Yeah, good. What else? Um, I think it is our human nature trying to force ourselves to look up to ourselves for things that we that aren't even worth looking up towards, that we don't even our qualities that we don't even have, and so that we could see ourselves as bigger or better. Yeah, we see those areas of our life as more superior and us as more superior than Jesus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think as I say, we, we don't want to be exposed. We don't want others to see our need. And so we continue to live as though we are the greatest rather than considering Jesus in those areas of our life.
That's really what hard-heartedness is. The issue in this text is really is one of the heart. It's a matter of, of believing and trusting in God rather than the other things that we would prop up ourselves on. Verse 10 says this, Therefore is angry with this generation, and they said they've always gone astray in their heart. So you think about why, why didn't the people of, of Israel get to enter the promised land? You, you could say, well, they sinned or they rebelled or, or they murmured or, or they complained. And yes, those things took, took place. But, but as we look at the writer here, he says in verse 19, you see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Unbelief is always a product of the heart. And the, it's really persistent sin in the face of God's mercy. That's the sign of unbelief. I think we need to consider that in our own lives. What area of our lives are we living with hard-heartedness? Where do we have areas there where we continually sin? Where there are areas of our, our lives? That's probably an area that would indicate you living in some type of hard-heartedness. Are there, are there things like we've just discussed that are persistent or ongoing in your life? Are there areas of your life where you're living that way? See, the truth is, and the good news is, that Jesus is actually offering rest from those things. If we humble ourselves and if we confess, he is actually faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, rest um, um, is for living, not just for escape. It's for living, not just for an escape. Rest is, rest is not a behavior. Rest is an issue of being. Rest is, rest is confidence that Jesus is greater and that he's more superior and that he's made us part of his home and that we're part of his house and that matters today as well as it matters in the future. And I want to I stop and as we head to communion, I, I want us just to take a few minutes and, and we don't always do this, but I want to take a few minutes where we would, we would silence ourselves and, and, and consider Jesus. To really take some time to, to repent of, of any hard-heartedness. Maybe that's towards someone. Maybe it's towards God. Um, and, and will you go to him today and, and say, I need you, Jesus. I need you, to, I need you to clean out this area of hard-heartedness in my life. Maybe you need to go make that right with someone else, too. Um, and the truth is, really, he says this at the end, is nothing is hidden from his sight. Jesus already knows. We are all already naked and exposed in the eyes of him. And there will be a day, one day, where we will all give an account for the things. Not for things we do, but the things that are in our heart. And Jesus is saying to us, I am here for rest for you. Will you find rest in him as your maker, as your owner, as your ruler, as the provider, as the savior? He's offering that to all of us today. And so I want us to just take a few minutes before we head to communion and just bow your head and silently ask God to reveal what area of your life you're still living in hard-heartedness. What area of your life are you, is something more superior and more greater than he is? And then I'll pray and then Jared will come up and we'll, we'll, we'll head to communion.
My Father, I confess this morning that I am in great need of you. My Father, I often live in pride. I often think that I am the one that is doing it, not you. I often think that, um, that my ways are better than yours. I often lead from a place of dependence of me rather than dependence of you. Father, I pray that you would remove that pride in my heart. pray that you would restore and redeem those things. Father, I pray that you would make me a humble uh, man under your presence. Father, I pray that for this room as well, that we would be known for humility, that we would be known for people that that see you as superior um, to anything else or anyone else in this world. Father, I pray for those in this room that don't yet know you. Father, I pray that you would break into their hearts and that you would reveal your truth to them and that they um, would turn and follow you and live in your ways. Father, I thank you that we get to be a part of your house because of the way that you have served us through Jesus. Father, we thank you that you willingly sent Jesus to die And not just die, but rise again, so that we would have great hope and great confidence that we get to have life now because of you. So, Father, I pray that you would continue to open up the areas of our lives um, where we're still holding on to, and that you would reveal your truth to us. And pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.